So before we get into part two of episode 22, Islam 101 with Judd King, I just want to make one quick announcement. I have decided to start a Patreon campaign. That's basically like a monthly support donation to the show. And I'm going to do some exclusive content for the patrons, which is what it's called when you contribute to a Patreon campaign. And really, I just started this after asking a bunch of you what you thought uh, to help cover the hard costs that I have every month. So you can go check it out if you're interested. Patreon.com slash depolarize. Patreon is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Patreon.com slash depolarize. And now here we go for more with Judd King on Islam. Okay, so I'm going to read you something from Sam Harris. First, like a real harsh and simple version, and then he gets a little bit more soft about it. But here's his main claim. The problem is that Islam isn't a religion of peace, and the so-called extremists are seeking to implement what is arguably the most honest reading of the faith's actual doctrine. So that's his kind of strong wording. And then here's a little bit more. What discussions of Muslim extremism miss and what is obfuscated at every turn by commentators like Glenn Greenwald, Reza Aslan, Karen Armstrong, etc., is the power of specific religious ideas such as martyrdom, apostasy, blasphemy, prophecy, and honor. These ideas do not represent the totality of Islam, but neither are they foreign to it, nor do they exist in precisely the same way in other faiths. There's a reason why no one is losing sleep over the threat posed by Quaker extremists. Specific doctrines matter. So that's Harris's argument. Is that convincing to you? I assume not. No, of course not. Why not? No, that's... Well, first of all, uh, people did lose sleep over Quaker extremists many a time and oft. They just haven't recently. Uh, We'll notice the... uh, the Puritans were very, very disturbed about that, and they uh, kind of had... Well, witch hunt is actually probably not the best m- metaphor to use there, because they actually did have literal witch hunts, but one of their main targets was people that had Quaker literature. Huh. Uh, later on, during the sort of pre-Civil War era, the Quakers were often the most radical people that were trying to get involved in abolition, and I believe some of them actually may have advocated doing so using violence, although I'm not certain about that. So let's not... Um, Paint the Quakers as sort of fundamentally different. You know, uh, people uh, have different uh, conceptions of things. Uh, That's the Quakers. But to get to the point, I think it's really a very absurd kind of thing to go reading other people's religious traditions for them, no matter what perspective you're doing that from. Mm. I mean, if you read the Old Testament and just the Old Testament you are not going to have any idea what the hell modern Judaism is. It will look nothing yeah. like that. You'll believe that people are supposed to be sacrificing a, you know, a, a calf every year at the temple. And that's the quote-unquote most honest reading of Judaism. And these other people are completely off base. And that has nothing to do with the price of tea in China as far as the actual people practicing the religion, what it means to them, or what they actually believe. Yeah, the counter-critique that Karen Armstrong levels at Harris and Dawkins is that they assume fundamentalist literal readings of Scripture are the truest readings of Scripture. And she argues that's actually opposite, that no Scriptures have ever been written to be read that way. In fact, all 
major scriptures were written to be read in a liturgical context as part of a religious life combined with certain ethical commitments and have never been meant to stand alone by themselves. And the example you gave of Sharia is a good example of that, right? You have a question, you first go to the Quran. Is it obviously addressed in the Quran? Like for instance, a Christian example would be like, could I cheat with my friend's wife? Well, I go to the Bible. Obviously I can't do that. You know, then the question is, well, could I go to coffee with my friend's wife whom I'm not sexually attracted to? Well, okay, now that's a harder question. And the Bible's not going to give me that answer. So maybe I'll go to church tradition. Right. And, and so, you know, so on and so forth. And to say that only the literal and whatever reading is, is the most honest kind of Islam or Christianity is just to assume right. fundamentalism or nothing, essentially. Right. Yes, exactly. And obviously for people like Sam Harris or Richard Dawkins, that plays perfectly into their hardcore atheist agenda of, you know, discrediting religion wherever possible by basically portraying it in its worst possible light at every, you know, chance. It's interesting, I think really, for all the protestations about not being religious, people like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins are profoundly religious in the sense that they sort of worship uh, the defunct... It, it, was, it was around during the French Revolution, uh, the cult of reason. Yeah. And I think they put altogether far too much stock in it. Not to say that, you know, I'm some sort of goofy religious person that's, you know, high all the time and just saying, you know, oh, nothing really means anything and, you know, a bunch of nonsense. But... Scientifically, you know, according to the evolutionary psychology that supposedly people like these, you know, believe in uh, as one of their sort of core doctrinal underpinnings, uh, and especially the intuitionist school of psychology, the entirety of human morality is really based not on reason, but instead on uh, the intuitions and uh, emotion. Yeah. And you really can't understand human cognition without understanding emotion because it's a fundamental part of things. And even if you have a book that rationally you believe in, or you know they might not consider it rational, but using your prefrontal cortex, I suppose, the sort of rational part of your brain, you have a committed belief in that says, you know, you should whip an adulterer or something like that. If that's against your conscience and your sort of emotional sort of thing, whatever it says in the book, don't let your, you know, emotions get the better of you actually whip yeah. them. You're going to find some way around doing right. it. Right. And, and uh, actually listeners will recall the Christina Cleveland episode from, you know, a couple weeks ago where we talked about this. And this is kind of the Jonathan Haidt moral foundations theory. This is like one way of thinking about how we make moral decisions and we don't simply reason them out of the ether. And it's kind of like Harris is saying, well, that's how we should read religious texts. We should just see the words and whatever they say, that is what we do quite literally. And you're just saying, this is not how people work. And it's also not how, if you actually look at the history of Muslims, it's not how they interpreted it either. So that makes perfect sense to me and, and kind of the stuff that I've been thinking about. And, but, it, but I think there might be a lingering question that someone would have, which is, okay, but if the Quran is to be taken literally as the word of God spoken through the prophet, as opposed to say the Bible, where we might want to say, well, the words point to Jesus, who's the real word, for instance, mm -hmm. is there a difference yeah 
between the Bible and the Quran in terms of maybe a, a push toward fundamentalism or something like that? No, I wouldn't say so. Uh, I think there are certain sociological factors in the Muslim world that predispose it toward fundamentalism at the current moment that are not present any longer in most Western countries. Uh, A lot of it really, uh, in the very broadest sort of sense, I think, comes down to the transition between a sort of pre-modern agricultural sort of society and modern industrial society, which... You know, you usually end up with the same pattern of tons of people moving from the countryside into the unfamiliar terrain of the city, and one of the only things that's sort of similar between those two places is religion. Yeah. And you get sort of a lot of uh, these sort of fundamentalist movements uh, popping up, you know, uh, as the industrialization process sort of uh, takes root. The Puritans were a very early sort of manifestation of that, although industrialization was still kind of early there, but it's the introduction of, for example, print capitalism and basically these sorts of things. But but there's also a whole slew of other reasons why it's it's particularly appealing to some people at this particular juncture. Colonialism plays into it, and there's a bunch of other things. But as far as theologically, no, I I really don't think uh, it makes fundamentalism more or less appealing because, you know, in any religious tradition, you can have fundamentalism or you can not have it. And it really just depends on the circumstances. Can you give us a few anecdotes from people you know or have met, you know, in your studies and in your travels as to why they've converted to Islam? That's something that we don't hear very much about. Yeah, a lot of them, frankly, probably a plurality, if not half of them, basically do this basically because they uh, want to get married to somebody that's Muslim, usually a girl, uh, and the family will require at least a nominal conversion before uh, that ends up happening. The old meet a beautiful Persian Muslim woman and, and have to go through the family rigmarole. Pretty much. <laughs> or Catholic or whoever. But uh, Right, exactly, yep. There is generally a very strong, strong, and this is actually way, tying into your question earlier about what's sort of the last thing that people uh, abandon when they're not practicing Muslims. I think having a non a Muslim woman marry a non-Muslim man is kind of the very, very last sort of thing to go, uh, even after eating pork and stuff like that. You know, if you're doing that, you know, either you're not going over to grandma's again because all her friends are going to be angry or she doesn't really care that much in the first place uh, because that's kind of a very serious... uh, And it makes sense because in a lot of contexts, that's something that people see as something like, well, if you have no value, do you have any values at all? Because if you did, you wouldn't let, you know, your grandchildren presumably become non-Muslims because you'd want to protect their religion. Uh, Obviously, if you don't believe in religion... It's a little different, but it's still something that's kind of, there's still an immense amount of pressure, even among people that don't really pray or never would pray or something well, like there's, that. Well, you see that in the Jewish community and there's, you know, you know, hundreds of movies about that, you know, poking fun at it basically of like, you know, marry a nice Jewish girl, you know, like that's, right. that's like a trope. In it makes more Judaism. sense in Judaism, in a sense, because it's it's this ethnic sort of thing, and it's not that numerically uh, big as a religion, and it's in most countries it's kind of very sparsely populated. So uh, yeah. that doesn't really apply as much to Islam. I mean, it's about as okay. 
you know, yeah. it's roughly in the same category as Christianity in that regard, and that's it's you know not dying out anytime soon for lack of you know reproduction. Yeah, <laughs> but but at any rate, that's still a strong thing for whatever reason in that community. So there's that. It really, though, and among people that convert for that reason, there's a very big spectrum of people that become very enthusiastic or that maybe even marry somebody because they're looking to convert or something like that, or people that just sort of either their husband or wife or whatever is very religious, but they're not, or neither of them is religious and they're just doing it because the family is pressuring them. But what I'm most interested in is people who have a religious change of heart and, and feel that Islam is, is where they ought to be. That entirely, entirely depends on the sort of person. Although I suppose there is a sort of class of sort of people that I guess you could say converted in the American context, such as African-Americans, the African-American community, uh, and that tied in very much with sort of various varieties of uh, black nationalism, especially in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. that was sort of looking for an alternative identity to the sort of uh, supposedly imposed Christian identity, that they, they sort of wanted something that could be more authentic. And, of course, people have continued to convert uh, for various reasons and join that community after that and after the Nation of Islam split and most of it sort of joined and became sort of mainstream Sunni Muslims. So you had that. However... Putting that sort of aside, I think people from most other ethnicities that end up converting, it's really, it very much depends on the person. A lot of people end up being drawn to different varieties of Islam. And some people, for example, are particularly interested in a religion that seems to have all of the answers and this idea that you can kind of micromanage everything and that, you know, uh, it'll tell you, you know, what time to pray, and it'll tell you kind of what to eat, who to marry, how to interact with the opposite sex. Some people are drawn to that, you think? A lot of people are drawn to that. And other people are, you know, on the opposite end of the spectrum and are sort of these kind of, for lack of a better term, sort of hippie spiritual seeker types that are usually drawn to sort of more inclusivist kind of Sufi Islam or mystical versions of Islam that kind of, you know, it's all good, sort of all religions are great sort of a thing. And, you know, those things are actually present in the tradition as well. So I'm not saying that's not there. And what you find is that over time, a lot of people end up actually maturing along with their own development in the religion. So a lot of people that are, for example, initially drawn to the idea that there's like order in everything and it's the system that can micromanage your life, as they get older, they might or might not end up moving into a sort of pattern where they say, okay, yeah, that was kind of nice when I was, you know... 20 or 18 or whatever, but now that I'm in my 30s or whatever, uh, I take a much more relaxed sort of view of things. There is also sort of tendency among converts, and you find this in a lot of religions, to sort of be more Muslim than the, I guess, the caliph, rather than more Catholic than the pope at first. Right, yeah. <laughs> Convert zeal. Yeah, and that kind of, well, it's not that they lose their zeal, it's just that they feel like they have maybe less to prove. Yeah. And moving on later and they become a bit more secure in their own sort of thing and they don't have to take the by the book interpretation of everything every time yeah. anymore as much. Uh, and then I, there are other people that have sort of converted to a sort of more laid back version of Islam that eventually undergo, I don't want to say a radicalizing sort of thing, but 
do undergo sort of a more, you know, doctrinaire phase or a transformation that happens. And, yeah. you know, that's for various reasons as well. There's kind of an attendant question because I think about this and, you know, I, like, what if I ask myself, why do people become Christians, right? And, and you know, you could yeah. give... You could give the pious answer of, well, everyone is drawn by the Holy Spirit or something like that. But, you know, why did I become a Christian? Well, I was raised Christian and I didn't want to go to hell. And I I saw these people I wanted to be like who followed Jesus. And and really, the better question is, like, what has being a Christian turned me into is really a better question than why did I become a Christian when I was 6 or 17 or whichever time you want to count, right? Right. And so then maybe another question would be like, okay— Picture in your mind some of these men and women you've met who are older than you and wise and just like are obviously beautiful people who are mm-hmm. practicing Muslims. What is it about those people that is distinctly Muslim that is so beautiful about them? Maybe that's the question I really want to ask. That's that's hard to answer. You know, I, I think I've gotten a little too wedded to my... Uh, I suppose, sort of social scientific mindset. You're definitely answering this question as a social scientist, that's for sure, which is great, and that's really interesting. I know, but it's it's hard for me to get back into the sort of, yes, this is distinctly... Islamic sort of mindset. Yeah. I, I used to have a great sense of that, but, uh, you know, one of the sort of things that is uh, a challenge as you get further down into this sort of social science thing is it really, there are things you can associate maybe with Islam, uh, generosity, hospitality, tolerance, that kind of a thing, honesty, that are all sort of good, but it's very difficult to sort of uh, get your mind around. I suppose, well, one example I can give you, these weren't converts, but they were Muslim, and I I would say this is a very, to sort of creep a little bit back into the essentialist uh, shell for a second, I'll do this, Uh, very distinctly Islamic sort of moment I was with my father at a mosque in Morocco. He's not Muslim, uh, but we had been uh, at the mosque to see it, and it got kind of late, and it was impossible to find a taxi, and we needed to get back to the hotel because we had an early plane out of the country the next day. And we try and try and try to find a taxi, and there's no taxis to be found. And I asked somebody, do you know if there's a taxi anywhere? And he says, no, there aren't. Come with me. And he and his son drive us back to our hotel, and we're talking, and, you know, he says, you know, it's it's good that you're here in Morocco and that kind of a thing, but I want both of you to know, uh, and I know you're a Muslim uh, because you told me, but you too, and he pointed at my dad, I, I want you to know we're only doing this for the sake of God's pleasure. You know, we really, you don't have to thank us. This is just... God will thank us in the hereafter. And, you know, that's kind of a sappy, corny kind of thing to say in a lot of ways, but he meant it. Yeah. And the idea that you kind of do these sort of charitable or good things sort of without questioning it at all, just as a simple matter of course, I think is very perhaps characteristic of at least sort of people that are culturally in tune with uh, most of the societies that have been touched by Islam. Another favorite story I've got that was sort of my my parents used to tell me about when they lived in Iran. 
they went to the house of this person. This was back before the revolution that ran, they ran or they had a very high position within the National Bank of Iran. And they went over to their house one, one night for dinner. It might have been Ramadan, I'm not sure. But the carpets alone must have cost, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. There was this insanely nice carpet uh, in the dining room. They, they ate over it, and this this meal arrived that they, you know, maybe seen in like a storybook or something of like silver tureens and silver forks and you know plate after plate just heaping with food. And they're like, oh my god, we're not going to be able to eat all of this. And they say, don't worry about it. Eat what you can. You're not expected to eat all of it. And after dinner, the People that had the house took the plates, all of these silver chafing dishes and tureens and bowls and plates and forks, and they put them in the alley outside of the house with the food, the remainders of the food, which was still quite a lot on it. Yeah. And my parents said, well, what are you doing? And it's like, well, this, you know, people that have as much money as us, you know, as Muslims, we always make three times as much food as we can eat. Maybe it's twice as much. So that, you know, this is for the poor. And sure enough, you know, they went back in the house, and sure enough, within like a few minutes or however long it was, the people had anonymously come, so it wouldn't be shameful to any of them, taken the food, and left all of the priceless silver sort of chafing dishes there, again, sort of without question. This was just the way people did things. And my parents said, you know, isn't this a little, you know, odd? This is like, no, of course it's not odd. This is just how we do things here. Wow. There's so much, there's so many beautiful things about that story because it's like, they're not worried about having the silver being stolen and the, right. the poor people are not stealing it. They'd like to continue to be able to eat this food in future times. Mm-hmm. And you could imagine someone who says, I just want to live in a society like that. And you can imagine that person being pretty conservative on a lot of issues, well, right? Well, what's interesting is, as nearly as I can tell, uh, and I'd have to ask my parents about this, but I, I'm fairly certain these were not, by any stretch of the imagination, the kind of revolutionary you know, Islamists that overthrew the Shah. These were people that were, I don't want to say in bed with him, but basically you know, people that were doing extremely, extremely well running the National Bank for the old regime. And this was just a traditional part of... Yeah. Islam, as even the relatively secular people at the time, or some of them, practiced it. Hmm. These were not, by any means, the sort of budding revolutionaries that said, we need all Islam all the time. Right. And yet, this was sort of a part of this older school, traditional sort of thing. But, you know, there are many other examples I could give of people that were very, uh, you But here's where uh, I want to take that. So I want to, and this will be the the last place that we go, just to respect your time, but... Imagine those two, uh, the owners of the house who, who put on the dinner, who left out the food. Mm-hmm. I want to say that there's something that they and an evangelical American Christian have in common. And I think it goes pretty deep. I think mm-hmm. that a lot of evangelical Christians, especially who are politically conservative that I know, they have a sense that like authority matters like rule of law matters, uh, loyalty to one's family and to one's community, like respect for one's elders. They want to live like when they think of the America of bygone years, some of the things that they miss are like leaving your doors unlocked, 
this kind of open communal thing. And you can understand, like listening to that story, how someone in that society might feel like a certain amount of conservatism was required to have a society wherein that routine interaction was possible because that routine interaction is beautiful and highlights the value of even the poor, not just the wealthy. But if you live in a super individualized society, dog eat dog, then those wealthy people are never going to leave their silver out because the first person who comes by is going to steal it and do what he or she wants with, with the money. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like what I'm trying to get at is, is there like a common ground here between your average cultural Muslim family and your average conservative Christian family? It feels like there really is. And yet the media tries to kind of pit them against each other for maybe for profit reasons or, I don't, you know, whatever the motive is. Like just much media about Muslims is, is sort of fear mongering and probably does very well ratings yes. wise. But I'm picking up on this real... I don't know, this kind of, um, not synergy, but really similarity between these ways of seeing the world. And I wonder if even politically some sort of coalition might be very easy to build between conservative Muslims and conservative Christians, like in terms of what they'd like the society to look like. I feel like they might share a lot of the same values and aims. So I don't know, just riff on that however you want. I think... There's a couple of directions I can go with this. The first is probably not as uh, sanguine a direction as we might like, but I'll I'll start with that, and then I can get into more positive territory later. Okay. I I personally suspect it's interesting you mentioned this idea of this nostalgia for a past that may or may not have existed, of, you know, not leaving your doors locked or that kind of a thing. I kind of suspect, unofficially, or I guess it's officially if I'm saying this now, a large part of the resentment towards Muslims that, or some aspect of the resentment toward Muslims that I think evangelical Christians in particular have tended to feel, is probably a sublimated form of jealousy, actually, Hmm. in that the kind of influence sort of fundamentalist scripture, scriptural interpretation appears to have, at least in Muslim societies, is kind of something that in a lot of ways, I think some conservative evangelicals could only really dream of in their own society. And, you know, it's kind of this strange sort of love-hate relationship where they really admire kind of the way Muslims do business, but because they're on the other side of it, it kind of just makes them angrier. That's really interesting. I don't know how we could prove that. Is there a way to prove that? No, I I don't think there is. But But that's interesting. You could ask people that you know, kind of, if it sort of rings true with them, or maybe just take them through a sort of thought experiment, I suppose. But uh, we could talk about that some other time if you want, because I'd be interested in that. But uh, in a lot of ways, I think the sort of Protestant Reformation as a whole, especially in the earlier period with the sort of like reform, reform movement and the Reformed churches, in a lot of ways it brought... Christianity, which had been so much focused on tradition and the sort of Catholic sort of thing, a lot closer to the tradition that had already existed in Islam, but hadn't really been a feature in Christianity uh, as much. Now, you could also say it's sort of closer to the sort of way that things were run in Judaism, but again, Judaism is sort of, 
it tends in its sort of ambit to be a bit more parochial in that it's, you know, yeah. catering toward the tribe rather than the whole world. And the idea of this um, really heavily scripture-oriented moral system that is evangelical and sort of universal in scope, really, I mean, it's, it, it was first brought into the world under Islam, and then in Christianity it sort of came about when they re-examined their sort of scriptural roots and decided to foreground those. Mm. So I think part of the problem, well, maybe it's sort of similar to the way that uh, uh, a lot of sort of the the Jewish-Arab sort of issue gets into a thing. They're basically the same, they have so many things in common culturally. I mean, if you sit down at an Arab table for dinner, there will be yelling and, uh, you know, uh, political arguments and waving silverware and stuff all around, and you'll get exactly, exactly the same thing in a Jewish family. Uh, I'm not saying all families are going to be like that, but it's basically the same. And part of the reason they get into such very big fights is because they're ultimately brothers. Hmm. And I think the Christian and Islamic sort of thing is that they're a little too close to each other for comfort in some ways. Really, if you get down to it, it's it's basically the same sort of thing. I think really the only big difference that you would get is the, well, two things. I suppose the Catholic focus on sort of tradition can be a little bit farther from the experience of most Muslims, although certain Sufi Muslims are very on board with that. And the other thing is the uh, idea in most kinds of Protestantism that uh, works don't really matter. That's a very big thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's an oversimplification of Protestantism anyway. Of course, yeah. But uh, saying that to a Muslim, they'd be like, what the heck are you talking about? Of course they matter. But I, I, even so, I mean, even there you get the same thing. There's there's the famous hadith where the, the prophet tells everybody that there was once a man who had lived his entire life for 80 years doing nothing but praying on this island and, uh, you know, obeying God and just praying constantly. And he never did a wrong thing in his life. And he dies, and he's brought up in front of God for the day of judgment. And God says, all right, my servant, you may now enter paradise by my mercy. And he says, well, wait a minute. I, I worshipped you for 80 goddamn years. I don't think he swore, probably. That would be bad. Uh, <laughs> that probably wouldn't be a good sort of thing. But I worshipped you for 80, 80 years constantly, and I never disobeyed you. I like your mercy and all, but I want to get into paradise by my deeds. And he says, you sure? And he's like, yes. And he, says, and he says to the angels, very well, call him to account. And they bring up this giant scale that they, they use. Yeah. And they say, bring forth the register of his deeds. And the angel of mercy proudly reads, this is the reward of 80 years of constant worship and never disobeying God. And he places it in the, in the, the right-hand thing of the scale. And the other angel comes up and says... And this is what you owe God for being able to see in your left eye for your life. Yeah. And he puts it in the scale, and it doesn't even balance out. Yeah. And the man cries out, by your mercy, by your mercy. And God says, very well, then you shall enter paradise by my mercy. Right. And I think that rings true very much with, I think, a Christian audience as oh, well. Oh, it does, I yeah. Mean, it's, yeah. It's, it doesn't happen to be part of the Christian tradition, but it very well could have, you know? Yep. And so I think there's really not that much daylight between the two faiths as faiths. As far as cultural things are concerned, 
There's a little bit of a differentiation, I would say, between American Muslims and Muslims that actually live in Muslim countries. Yeah. And I think American Muslims in particular are a bit wary, at least, of right-wing evangelicals these days. Not not always, but uh, most Muslims uh, in the U.S. are particularly, uh, it seems they're very interested in interfaith events and that kind of a thing. It might surprise you to learn that actually most Muslims in the U.S. actually initially voted for George W. Bush. Hmm. You know, the uh, believe in presidents. Yeah. And a lot of that had to do with sort of common ground, unfortunately, on issues such as, you know, anti-LGBT things, although that's gradually beginning to change in the Muslim community, as it is, in, I think, also in the Christian community. It's changing there, too, yeah. Although, you know, it, if you say most conservative Muslims, most conservative Christians, yes, they're mostly going to be against it. But you know what? You see what I'm trying to say is is not necessarily yeah. there's going to be some actual coalition, but it's just that there's a lot of overlap in the way that people see the world. And I, I sense quite a bit of overlap there between a conservative Muslim and a conservative Christian in terms of these moral intuitions that they share. Undeniably. I mean, and even the, the concrete sort of prescriptions of the religion, uh, you know, it's common for Muslims to sort of think, you know, if they're, they're devout, well, you know, you're Christian, you know, but you should go to church, you know, still, you should mm-hmm. pray. It's not good for you to lose tra- track with God. I don't know, because a part of Muslim belief, of course, is that Christians do worship the same God and that their religion is a legitimate revelation from God. And in fact, most Muslim, almost all Muslims believe that in fact a good and sincere Christian can get into paradise without converting to Islam. Hmm. Sometimes they add little conditions like, you know, you, as long as you don't intentionally reject Islam or something like that. Yeah. But generally people hold out the theoretical possibility as, and it says so in the Quran, in fact, that whoever um, of the Jews or the Christians or others, you know, whether they're male or female, does good deeds and believes in God will get their reward from God. So it's not really this exclusive sort of thing. I think Muslims and conservative Christians are generally on a different page, really, when it comes to things like dating, even. Very superficially, it's kind of similar in that they're both more conservative, but I think conservative by Muslim standards and conservative by Christian standards aren't usually the same sort of thing in that regard. And the conservative by Muslim standards means you don't go out with somebody of the same sex unless there's like a third-party chaperone supervising the entire thing. And even if you are alone together, so much as a kiss is too much. But man, I got to tell you, I know a lot of people who would really prefer if that were still the case in America. There are, yeah, but I... You know, I mean, and that's I think, who I'm, that's kind of who I'm thinking about. Like, if you gave certain people I know the option of like, hey, if it could be done this way most of mm-hmm. the time, like, would you would you think that society would be better? They would say, absolutely, it'd be better. Yeah, and and you get that. I think in America, it, it obviously, as a minority religion, you have to make compromises with things, and I think that's healthy for people. Yeah. And they're, they're developing some interesting sort of things with that. And I, honestly, in the Muslim world itself, it's very much changing these days, too, the way people date. Even the fact that you're having these sort of supervised dates is now a big step, I don't know, forward is the right word, there's a necessary direction of progress there, but uh, in a new direction, because traditionally, at least, things mostly worked through arranged marriages. And by traditionally, I mean up until, you know, not all that long ago, and in some cases, there's still arranged marriages, so... The idea that you get to know somebody 
by meeting them and talking to them in sort of these choreographed public sort of circumstances. But, you know, you go to the mall with your sister in tow and you chat and your sister is bored and looks at her iPhone the whole time. And, you know, you stare deeply into each other's eyes and giggle, (laughs) you know, if it goes well, I guess. You know, that's very much... um, Kind of uh, the way things are done, you know, by most conservative Muslims these days. Uh, and, you know, more liberal or even fairly conservative, but not quite that conservative Muslims might even allow them off by themselves. And, you know, some people even date. But it's still, you're right, there's, there's, there's some room for sort of uh, congruence with some Christians there. Although I still think that if uh, you told most evangelical Christians certainly younger ones, that you shouldn't even kiss your girlfriend, they'd be like, yeah, I'm not quite on board with that. Yeah. Exactly. Sure. Uh, but, you know, it depends on the person very much. I'm most, I'm thinking more of, like, people over 50 I'm, is mostly how I'm thinking. I just, I'm wondering ah. if there's, like, I'm wondering if there could be a potentially symbiotic relationship between sort of, like, conservative Christians over the age of 50 and conservative Muslims. I just think that if they talked about it, they would, they would be talking about all the problems of the young people and, and all these issues in society. And they would like really agree. And I, and I don't even want to say that they'd be wrong about those. I mean, I think they, a lot of those concerns are legitimate. They share them. I'm just, you know, it's depolarized podcast. So I'm trying to find threads I can draw between disparate groups of people. It's interesting. I would think that that would be a very natural sort of thing. It's unfortunate that um, certain varieties of kind of conservatism have often created more conflict than they have. Yeah. You know, and that that's true on both sides of, you know, some Muslims that say really, okay, Christians are fine, maybe they can go to heaven, but don't interact with them or imitate them, whatever you do. Yeah. You know, or interact with them by saying hi at the store, but just enough so that you're not rude. Versus other people that, you know, say it's absolutely okay for you to go. Uh, in a lot of Muslim countries, for example, it's a very common tradition for the Muslims to show up at the Easter parties or the Christmas parties that Christians hold and the Christians to show up for the Muslim holidays as well. Uh, as a matter of course, you know, the local Christians, I mean. And Muslims in America are very much willing to do that. The issue, I think, that we've seen over the last couple decades most of the people that tend to reach out to the Muslim community, very unfortunately, happen to be uh, the sort of mainline Protestants and the sort of liberal Christians, and sometimes Catholics. Right. Uh, the Catholics have gotten in on this increasingly as well. And they uh, are tending to dominate most of the conversation that uh, you know uh, Muslims are having with Christians. And you know the Muslims are liking it very much, although I do part of me does sort of suspect that... Uh, Maybe, at least for the older Muslims and a lot of the people that are sort of uh, a little more conservative, they probably would have a bit more in common with the uh, more conservative Christians. But, you know, partly because... They aren't the ones doing the reaching out. They're not stepping up to the plate as much. Yeah, It might also have a lot to do with the the places where people are located. But, But also it just has the things. I mean, I remember when I was at Duke University and I was part of an interfaith dialogue group, the main people that would always show up were the, you know, sort of liberal Presbyterian minister, who was a great guy, and, you know, a couple of other liberal sort of Catholics and stuff. And uh, you wouldn't really get the Campus Crusade for Christ people showing up as often. And there exactly. were a couple of them. There were some of them, and they uh, invariably they found they had quite a lot in common with these people. And mm. it was 
you know, moving and, you know, to be kind of expected really when you get down to it. But I think uh, yeah. the more dialogue there definitely is, the better. Right now is kind of, well, it's a little bit of a bad time, and it's also a great time for this sort of a thing. I would strongly recommend that anybody that voted for Trump maybe not talk about that as much, or at least not bring it up personally, if they're going to try and do one of these things. And I I certainly, to make myself clear, I do not believe at all that everybody that voted for Trump, or even most people, actually dislikes Muslims or would be opposed to talking with them. Of course. And that kind of a thing. In some circles, that's not a given that people believe that. Well, we, uh, on this podcast, we have tried to do a good job of not identifying all Trump voters as any particular thing. Of course, and I think that's a very wise and necessary sort of thing to do. And I'll absolutely think that, uh, I don't know about most of them, but I know a lot of them would certainly be very happy for the opportunity to have a dialogue with Muslims. Now is actually a really good time for that because... Muslims, as I, I don't think I need to explain, feel very uh, generally very uncertain about their future and kind of scared at the moment. Yeah. Not like they're, you know, in the, literally in the corner shaking, but that they're worried. And it's a time when they're not really as sure as they once were that their neighbors respect them and, you know, value them as Americans or as people or really even want to talk to them. Yeah. And I think now is actually a really good time to reach out, as long again, as long as you avoid contentious political sort of things, but asking about the religion, what it's like, talking about sports or the weather or, you know, food or something like that, or, you know, kids these days or, you know, uh, you know, I, re- I really recommend that, kids these days. That's my personal recommendation. No, that's, that's a great one. You know, I think that there's absolutely, it's a, a perfect time to talk about that because they're looking for people that are re- reaching out to them and they're, they're kind of making mental notes of, okay, who is it that's been reaching out to us at this time when we need it? Who yeah. is it that's been sort of, uh, harassing us, certainly, and who is it that's just sort of been passively letting things happen? And they're going to have a memory of this for a long time, I think, and uh, you want to be on the right side of it if you can, and uh, who knows, you might learn something. Well, Judd, I think that who knows, you might learn something is a great uh, way to end this podcast, also a great subtitle for this episode. <laughs> I was hoping it would be good. I yes. learned a ton, man. I mean, this is just a crash course here. And thank you so much for your time and your expertise and sharing it with us. You're more than welcome. If people want to find you, you know, online or whatever, where should they go? Well, I've got a Facebook page, uh, Judd King Academic. Uh, you should take a look at that. I post stuff there periodically, and it's pretty good. You can like me on Facebook. All right, man. Well, that's great. And, dude, just thanks so much for your time, and have a great day, and keep keep keeping on. Thank you, and you too, and hopefully we can do this again sometime. Okay, sounds good, Jed. As I said before, I have decided to start a Patreon campaign if you want to give... A little bit of money each month. The lowest tier is 7 bucks a month. Um, check out patreon.com slash depolarize. And we'll be back next week with more killer interviews.